Welcome one, welcome all. I'm Eddie Murata, and I'd like to welcome you to the very first installment of the Murata Mode podcast. To begin my very first episode, I'd first like to thank everyone who pushed me to start this. I've been involved with radio, hosting and producing different shows for quite some time now, but I never pulled the trigger to do it for myself until now. Anyone who knows me is sure that I can fill time talking about sports all by myself, and I'm eager to finally be able to share those opinions with others. All right, all right, that's enough of an introduction. You're not here to listen to me ramble on about why I started the show, so let's dive right into it. Last week, in a short take, I released my Mock Draft 1.0. Towards the end of that Mock Draft, I said there wouldn't be a 2.0 or a 3.0, but based on the overwhelmingly positive response I had to the first one, in addition to all the new reports that naturally came to light in a week's span of time, I couldn't help myself but to do it again. So, compiling data from NFL.com, sorting through countless expert opinions, and drawing conclusions of my own, without further ado, I present Eddie's Mock Draft 2.0. With the first pick in the NFL Draft, the Cleveland Browns select... Josh Allen, quarterback, Wyoming. Whoa-ho-ho, starting this one off with a bang. In my last mock, I had the Browns, like many people do, taking Sam Darnold, who I think still may be taken here, but let's just put this out there for argument's sake. Cleveland has been longing for that big-armed, burly kind of guy for quite some time now, after having a history of bad luck with smaller quarterbacks. They've passed up on a lot of successful quarterbacks with their high draft picks and have frankly surprised a lot of people in doing so along the way. I think they may shock the world yet again by taking Allen number one, but would this really be that big of a stunner? Let's think about this one. We know that the Browns want a guy with great intangible skills, and they've got one in Allen. We also know that passing up on one of these QBs in the past has particularly haunted head coach Hugh Jackson and his staff, and that guy's name is Carson Wentz. Let's compare the two. Wentz, 6'5", 237. At the NFL Combine, he ran a 4.77, 40-yard dash, had a 30.5-inch vertical jump, and a 6.86-second three-cone drill. Showcasing his big arm, Wentz, from FCS North Dakota State, jumped up draft boards and eventually was taken number two overall by the Eagles behind Jared Goff, who went to the Rams. The Browns traded out of the number two pick that year. Now, Allen, 6'5", 237. At the Combine, Allen ran a 47540, 33 0.5-inch vertical, and a 6.9-second three-cone drill. Coming from small Division I Wyoming, Allen's cannon of an arm and athleticism have him jumping up draft boards. Yes, the guy's combine numbers look almost identical. Based on the competition, it's hard to judge where they ranked in terms of the other big-name quarterbacks in the draft. But... I do have one interesting name throughout all of this that isn't getting enough attention. Craig Bull, the head coach of the Wyoming Cowboys. 
Bowles started his coaching tenure with Wyoming, where he coached Allen in 2013 after leading FCS North Dakota State to the national championship game. Yes, Allen and Wentz had the same college coach. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that their games will translate the same in the NFL, but I guess you can say Coach Bull has a very specific recruiting style for quarterbacks. Anyways, Allen's big criticism has been his accuracy and that 56% completion percentage that is making scouts hesitate on putting him this high in their draft boards. You can say that he didn't have help around him all you want, but this is a big one, and it's not going to get any easier from jumping from Mountain West defenses to the pros. Allen's been working with Jordan Palmer on his footwork and tightening his throwing motion on that rocket arm, but game speed is a whole lot different than throwing in gym shorts in a dome for your pro day. Bottom line is, Allen needs time to develop. And luckily for him and the Browns, they have a unique situation. Bringing in Tyrod Taylor in the offseason puts absolutely no pressure on Allen to start day one. And Hugh Jackson, who is said to be a quarterback whisperer, has time to develop one of the most raw talents we've seen in years. The Browns may very well get their second chance at once in Allen, and they won't pass on him this time. For argument's sake, the Browns take Josh Allen at number one. At number two, the New York Giants take Sam Darnold, quarterback, USC. Oh, now this is where things start to get interesting. The Browns shock everyone by taking Allen at number one, but we all knew they were going to go quarterback one way or another. The Giants with the number two pick really hold the keys to this whole draft, a team that rarely, if ever, Picks high, this high in the draft. This is a situation that could lead to a domino effect for the rest of the top 10. And the fact of the matter is that the Giants just don't have any tendencies to look back on when picking up here to be able to guess their move. They potentially could trade out and get a lot of real estate and jumpstarting a rebuild, or they can even trade Odell Beckham and end up with two or no top 10 selections and have a boatload of picks later in the draft to work with. But let's not discuss what they could do, and let's discuss what they will do. They have shown their hand a bit and leaked that they really, really like Saquon Barkley early in the draft process. I'll go back to this, though, from my first mock draft and say that although Barkley would be the flashy move, The Giants are in need of a running back. The bottom line is that they just don't have the offensive line. They would need to justify taking a running back number two overall with such a deep class of them in 2018. They pass on Barkley. With the Browns taking Allen at number one overall and Darnold is left on a silver platter at number two for him, the Giants won't hesitate in taking their next franchise quarterback after Eli hangs him up. We all saw Darnold's pro day in the rain and watched as he put on a show for all the scouts. While the Browns got the majority of the attention that day, the Giants were lurking in the background, waiting for their opportunity. This would be the perfect situation for Darnold to grow in, and Eli Manning would be a model that he can step in to replace whenever Manning decides to move on from New York or retire. 
The Giants don't pick here often, and it would be foolish of them not to take his predecessor when stuck in the same division as Carson Wentz and Dak Prescott for the next decade. The Giants take their QB, but allow him to develop before hitting the spotlight in New York. Darnold would fit that role with ease. After trading up to number three in the draft, the New York Jets are going to take a quarterback. With Josh Rosen gift-wrapped to them at number three, they don't hesitate in taking the UCLA QB. One, two, three. And the top three quarterback prospects from this year's draft are off the board. 2018 really is the year of the quarterback, and somehow, without trading up into the top two, the Jets are left at three with what many consider to be the most NFL-ready QB out of the bunch from a talent standpoint. With their own mess of a situation at quarterback, the Jets retained Josh McCown, who was about to be the quarterback's coach in Cleveland two years ago before they pulled him off the streets, and they signed Teddy Bridgewater, who hasn't had meaningful action in a game since 2015. There are questions surrounding Rosen's ability to manage the game when he goes uh, off script from plays, and his willingness to stand in the pocket may be a little too tough at points and has caused him to have problems with concussions and other injuries throughout his career that may deter him from being one of the top two picks. The Jets still have themselves an enigma at the most important position of the game, though, and a good old-fashioned quarterback competition will help push a guy like Rosen to win the position the right way in New York. After watching Tom Brady dominate their division for the better part of the last 20 years, the Jets get their chance at a solid franchise quarterback for the future and the best pure passer in this year's draft. The Browns are on the clock again at number four overall, and they can't pass up a guy that they've been high on the entire draft process, Saquon Barkley, running back, Penn State. It's a good day in Cleveland for the Browns fans as they get their quarterback of the future and an absolute home run hitter out of the backfield in Barkley. His combine numbers say it all, a 4440, 41-inch vertical, and 29 reps of 225 pounds in the bench press. He's a monster. A running back who many tout as better coming out of college than Ezekiel Elliott, the Browns are in the market for someone with game-breaking ability. Although I would consider a do-it-all player like Minka Fitzpatrick here, especially with his fit in a Greg Williams defensive scheme in Cleveland, the Browns just signed T.J. Carey in free agency and drafted a similar style player in Jabril Peppers last year, who I'm sure they still want to take a shot at developing after a bad first season. With the need at corner, the Browns can get a guy like Josh Jackson at the top of the second round and still have a stronger defense than their running game would be with the departure of Isaiah Crowell in free agency. Barkley's only real criticism throughout the draft process is that his production slowed later in games when he reached between 25 and 30 touches. But the Browns have already solved that issue by signing Carlos Hyde to help manage the back's energy later in games. Nobody really goes with a one-back system anymore anyways, and the Browns will have a three-headed monster in Barkley, Hyde, and Duke Johnson. 
Everyone has fallen in love with Barkley while watching him tear up NFL-style defenses in the Big Ten throughout his collegiate career, and the Browns are no different. They'll take Barkley at four, and pairing him with Josh Gordon and Jarvis Landry on the outside will give them a very compelling team to watch moving forward. Denver is up at number five, and they're going to take corner Denzel Ward out of the Ohio State University. Denver really wants to get their hands on another corner after trading away Aqib Tlaib to the Rams in free agency, and they see their opportunity in possibly even upgrading the position with Denzel Ward, a lockdown corner on the outside. Ward has been one of the few collegiate corners that teams would refuse to throw the ball towards. He's moving up draft boards fast after the success of Marshawn Lattimore, who won Defensive Rookie of the Year with the Saints last year. Both of them came from the pro-style defense that Greg Schiano's OSU regime implements, and Ward may be even more NFL-ready coming out, arguably a better talent than the Defensive Rookie of the Year, and showcasing his 4.3240 speed at the Combine, Denzel Ward, goes to the Broncos at five. The Indianapolis Colts pick sixth after their trade with the Jets, and they grab Bradley Chubb, defensive end, NC State. The Colts' pass rush was abysmal last season and ranked second to last in the league. Without needing to be said, the Colts need help on their defensive line. Coming out of NC State, Bradley Chubb is a stud. He looks the part of an NFL lineman at 6'4", 270, and has shown the versatility to play multiple positions along the defensive line effectively. Three-point technique, standing up, it all looks good from Bradley Chubb. He needs to clean up his initial impact off the line of scrimmage to more efficiently force contact with linemen on the other side of the ball, but that will come with time. Bottom line is, the Colts trade down and get a guy they may have taken even if they stayed at number three overall, to help a glaring weakness. Desperately needing help along their offensive line, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers select one of this year's can't-miss players, Quentin Nelson, guard, Notre Dame. Again, for a guard to be considered a this year's can't-miss player means a lot. Tackles are more often taken this high in the draft, but yes, Nelson is just that good. 40 sacks and 100 quarterback hits ranked Tampa Bay's offensive line in the lower third of the league last year, and that's far too low when you have a young quarterback like Jameis Winston. Wide hips and great explosion off the line of scrimmage give Nelson the ability to beef up Tampa's weak interior immediately after walking through the door of the facility, and he'll help Winston stop staring at the top row of the stands all day long, so Tampa Bay gets their guard in Nelson at 7. Chicago's up at number eight, and they take Tremaine Edmonds, outside linebacker, out of Virginia Tech. People are under the illusion that Chicago is going to draft a corner like Denzel Ward here, but I don't buy the hype one bit. Ward's gone at five, and the Bears have held true in saying that they're comfortable with the guys they have at their top two corner positions. Eight is way too high to draft another one with such a deep class of corners that can fill their needs later in the draft, and they need help at linebacker more than they do on the outside. 
an extremely gifted athlete that is drawing comparisons to former Bear and NFL Hall of Famer Brian Urlacher. Edmonds and the Bears are a great fit in the top 10. At number 9, the San Francisco 49ers steal, and I mean steal, Minka Fitzpatrick, safety, Alabama. It's so hard to imagine Minka slipping this far, but with the luck that the 49ers GM, John Lynch, and head coach Kyle Shanahan have had since taking over the reins in the Bay Area, it somehow wouldn't surprise me as much as it should. They grabbed Reuben Foster at pick 31 in last year's draft after the guy was considered a top 5-10 to 10 pick. Granted, some off-the-field issues have persisted that forced him to drop, but talent-wise, their first round last year was absolutely incredible. Then, they go grab Jimmy G for a second-round pick, and San Fran seems like they can do nothing wrong with their rebuild so far. This one's no different. Minka's a versatile player that plays with such a great passion. He could cover the slot, play linebacker at points, rush the passer off the edge, and even play special teams. The 49ers grab a guy who can help them in every area they need defensively, and John Lynch will know exactly how to use Fitzpatrick. With the game shifting towards one single high safety and the second that steps down to cover tight ends and play more run support, Minka gives you that and more. Think of a Patrick Chung or Malcolm Jenkins who both played in the Super Bowl. This is that type of role that Minka would have. The 49ers would love a player of this caliber to fall to nine, and they absolutely steal Minka Fitzpatrick. Ah, we finally reached number 10. And the Oakland Raiders find some much-needed help for their linebacking core in selecting Roquan Smith from Georgia. This is a great fit for a team that needs help all over defensively. Taking secondary help later in the draft, they ranked among the bottom third of the league in sacks last year. With Bradley Chubb surely gone by now, the Raiders feel that this is a little too high to take Marcus Davenport from Texas San Antonio in Conference USA, so the Raiders go after one of the best leaders in this draft at linebacker as a compliment to Khalil Mack. Instinctive, explosive off the line of scrimmage, and very adept at slipping blocks, Roquan Smith is a guy that would fit right into Raider culture. Okay, so we made it through the mock draft. I'd like to end the show with another list, this time of my top NFL teams after free agency. But before we get back into that whole game of creating lists, I'd like to express my opinion on some of the current headlines around the league since I know you're all anxious to hear them. I'd like to start with Odell Beckham Jr., or OBJ, in the Big Apple. Let me just say up front, I haven't really been a fan of this guy since he entered the league. While it's totally undeniable how extremely talented he is, as a coach or manager, I wouldn't put up with the -the off-the-field issues. But we don't even have to go that far. How about on the sidelines? OBJ can consistently be seen throwing temper tantrums when he doesn't get the ball, fighting with the kicking net and cussing out coaches and players. Maybe his bleached hair leaked into his brain, but I'm not sure. It also could have been the marijuana or cocaine that he was caught on video with from his most recent stint in France. Sure, the guy probably does this in his offseason like a lot of players, and I get that. 
but to not be coherent enough to recognize that a third party is taking a video of you and that may hurt your image through the spotlight of New York, that's just a bad look. What's even worse, though, is for that same player to come out just days after the incident and tell the team that he, quote, won't step on the field until he gets his raise, which we're all aware is somewhere around the $100 million mark by now. OBJ wants to make quarterback money, and although numbers don't back up that a perimeter player like himself should even be fighting for that much money, the least he can do is impress the team by cleaning up his act off the field. If you want to make the big bucks, show them that you deserve it. Throwing parties on boats before playoff games that you are riddled with drops in and getting caught on camera with illegal substances just isn't a good start. But don't demand a raise on a 3-13 team after that. The Giants would be best served to trade OBJ and get a King's Ransom in return. That's what they're asking for, and they can get it based on his game-breaking ability on the field. He's in a contract year anyways, so if they don't re-sign him, he will be a free agent and can sign wherever he wants. They would be much smarter to trade him now while they can get something in return. For those of you who say that a trade wouldn't happen simply based on his talent, take a trip down memory lane to when Randy Moss and T.O. were traded several times. When the off-the-field issues outweigh your value on the field, talent doesn't matter, and a team will move on. That's the name of the game in the NFL. It shouldn't surprise anyone at this point, so don't be shocked if OBJ is moved. All right, switching gears a little bit, I'd like to touch on the recent drama surrounding the New England Patriots. As many of you know, I'm a fan of the team, but I won't let that deter me from giving a rational take about the state of the organization at this point. The fact of the matter is that there has been more off-the-field storylines pertaining to the team than we've all been accustomed to for years. From tensions within the organization to players leaving and potentially retiring, there's been a lot to digest, so here we go from the top. This all started when a report by ESPN stated that there was a major disconnect between Robert Kraft, Bill Belichick, and Tom Brady. While I do believe that parts of this were true, I can't help but notice that there were some major points that I disagree with. In the article that was built to attack Brady, trainer Alex Guerrero was highlighted as the cause of this riff after he was separated from the team's facilities and doctors. I'm totally fine with this happening. His office is right down the street, and as long as players can still go get their own uh, training on their own time, I don't see a problem with it. But the discrepancy comes when the article says that players were being forced to go there instead of the team's doctors. And the main example of this was given when former quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo sprained his AC joint in his shoulder against the Miami Dolphins in 2016. The article claims that Garoppolo went to the TB12 Center before consulting team doctors, but nobody was there to help, so he went back to visit the team's medical staff. Now just think about that for a second. Garoppolo got hurt in the second quarter of the game and was forced out because it was his throwing shoulder. He was seen by team personnel on the sidelines. The team was well aware of his injury and was helping him recover. Again, if he sought other methods in his own time, 
That's another story, but the angle of this article puts the blame on Brady and Guerrero for purposely deterring players from visiting the team's staff, and that just isn't true. I personally believe that there is some tension between Brady and Belichick, and that this is stemmed from Kraft stepping in to force Belichick to stick with Tommy longer term. BB had found his guy in Garoppolo, and after the Super Bowl win in 2016, thought it was about time for Tom to think about hanging it up. But Brady wanted to show the world that the TB12 method works and that he can play into his mid-40s at a high level. Kraft, who looks at Brady like a son, wanted, just like all of us fans, to see Brady don the Patriot uniform until his retirement, and that moved off the Belichick way. Think back a bit throughout the Patriot dynasty. Belichick has moved on from countless big-name players who were with the franchise for years until he found a younger, better model. Some of those names include Lawyer Malloy, Ty Law, Willie McGinnis, Teddy Bruschi, Mike Vrabel, Richard Seymour, Asante Samuel, Vince Wilfork, Dion Branch, Wes Welker, and Randy Moss, just to name a few. The list goes on, and Belichick has made it a point to recycle players before they are over the hump and dump them when he finds an upgrade. Brady was turning 40 before the season, and this was Belichick's shot to go from Favre to Rodgers and prove he could win the big one without TB12. The result? Garoppolo was traded for a second-round pick, Tom won the 2017 NFL MVP, and the Patriots reached the Super Bowl yet again. My argument is, if Brady can play at as high of a level this late in his career as he keeps proving that he can and plays until he's 45, that gives the Patriots four more seasons with the GOAT and plenty of time to groom a successor. At that point, Garoppolo would have been a nine-year vet collecting dust on a shelf, so if you go down that route, do it while you can figure out the rest while you're making it to AFC championships and Super Bowls on a regular basis. Don't nitpick when teams would love to have the issues that you do. As Kraft said, they have, quote, high-class problems. Ain't that the truth? All righty. With that being said, I think it's about time to wrap it up and unveil my top five NFL teams following the free agency period. Here we go. Number one. At number one, I have the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles. As a Pats fan, it still doesn't feel right saying that, but the Eagles are more than deserving of the top spot on this list. The rich get richer next season with the return of Carson Wentz, an emerging talent in the league last season before he tore his ACL, and the Eagles also added to their biggest strength in trading for defensive end Michael Bennett from the Seattle Seahawks. The Eagles' defensive line was scary enough as it is, and now with the thought of Michael Bennett running through right tackles off the line of scrimmage for the Eagles, the NFC South should be very, very scared. Another move that I really liked the Eagles making was the addition of Mike Wallace. Presumably, Wallace will take the role that Torrey Smith had last season, but Smith wasn't consistently able to create separation on deep routes that they liked to run him on. Even in his later years, Mike Wallace is still a threat to run by defenders in a hurry. Managing his snaps as a number three receiver can be very beneficial at this stage of his career, and it's a very solid pickup for the Eagles. Number two. At number two, I have the New England Patriots, 
and given their history in free agency and moving players around, I refuse to place the AFC champions any lower on this list. Yes, the Patriots did lose a lot this offseason with the departures of Malcolm Butler, Deion Lewis, both of who went to the Titans, who's coached by former Patriot Mike Vrabel, and Nate Solder and Danny Amendola. But this is the Patriots we're talking about. All they've done for the last 15 to 20 years is plug and place new guys on a yearly basis, and they've had success with all of them. The moves they did make later in free agency were very strong. They needed a pass rusher, and they went after Adrian Claiborne from the Atlanta Falcons for another great signing. With the return of Dante Hightower, who played a lot on the edge in his time with the team last season and the anticipated return of rookie Derek Rivers, the Patriots filled their pass rushing need. They'll also most likely bring back James Harrison after OTAs, so what was a weak pass rush before now becomes a lot stronger. Adding Jason McCourty on the back end helps fill the role of Malcolm Butler, and Eric Rowe stepped up a lot in later in the season as well. It's going to be nice to finally see the McCourty twins suit up for the Pats next season. As the Browns' number one corner last year, this is a great pickup for the Pats, but that's not all they got from the Browns, as they added some run support in Danny Shelton, who draws comparisons to Vince Wilfork when coming out as a first-round pick a couple years back. On the offensive side of the ball, the Patriots added Jeremy Hill at running back to spearhead their attack with James White and the retaining of Rex Burkhead. Coming from a crowded backfield in Cincy, Jeremy Hill will fit right in with the system in New England. Also, Julian Edelman's coming back, so that helps. He'd obviously take up most of the snaps that Amendola saw last season, especially later in the year. But he provides a better presence for routes over the middle of the field, whereas Amendola saw most of his action on outbreaking routes. Edelman can do it all and will be nice to have back, paired with Brandon Cooks and Chris Hogan. Number three. The LA Rams made a huge splash in free agency this year and added a lot of talent to a team that already grew leaps and bounds last season. The Rams' defense was in need of a lot of help on the back end, and they went out and filled not one, but both corner spots with lockdown players. Trading for both Marcus Peters and Aqib Tlaib, the Rams created one of the best secondaries in the league basically overnight. On that same side of the ball, they bring in Indomitian Sioux from Miami, and the interior of their defensive line is an absolute force to be reckoned with after Sue is paired with Aaron Donald, who may be considered uh, the best player in the league, period, by some. You can't double-team both guys, so this is bound to give offensive lines headaches all season long. The Rams are scary on defense. And offensively, the Rams led the league in scoring last year. They lost Sammy Watkins in free agency, but they are in the market for just about every player that is on the trading block, including one Odell Beckham Jr. If OBJ goes from the Big Apple to Hollywood, the Rams have themselves an NFL super team. Number four. The Minnesota Vikings come in at number four. The Vikings already had one of the most well-rounded rosters in the entire league from top to bottom, and that was before they added Captain Kirk Cousins. Getting what they feel like was the missing piece in a Super Bowl run, the Vikings are primed to make another deep playoff push this upcoming season. 
with Diggs and Thielen on the outside and Dalvin Cook returning from injury, their offense has a multitude of weapons. And with a defense that was ranked at or near the top of the league in every statistical category, the new-look Purple People Eaters are going to be scary yet again next season. Number 5. The Pittsburgh Steelers. The Steelers were quiet as usual in free agency, but they didn't need to make waves to have one of the most premier rosters in the league. They have the killer bees in Big Ben, Le'Veon Bell, and Antonio Brown. And the addition of Juju Smith-Schuster last season rounded out an incredible offensive attack. Defensively, the Steelers have some work to do in my opinion, but a rotating cast of players that now has an entire offseason to work together and tighten up some of the holes in their zone should be much improved next season. With an offense that has a chance to put up 40-plus points on you any given week, the Steelers have to be regarded as a top-five team in the league. So there's my top five teams in the league after free agency, and there's much more excitement coming up with the draft right around the corner at the end of this month. With that, I think I'm about ready to wrap up the first edition of the Murata Mode podcast, so I want to thank everyone for listening in, and I hope that you tune back in when episode two finally drops. I'm Eddie Murata. Thanks again. Catch you later, knuckleheads. Knuckleheads.